Hello and welcome to The Conversation with me, Amanda Decadene. This series of The Conversation is brought to you by VS Voices, another fantastic podcast I host, which highlights trailblazing women from around the world to celebrate the multifaceted nature of the female experience. You can listen to Voices on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. On this week's episode, I'm speaking to author Elizabeth Day about all things friendship, from the joy and the sisterhood to the painful reality of what happens when you have a painful friend breakup. So I wanted to ask you, because we're just getting to know each other, but Mm -hmm. what do people call you? Do they call you by your full name? Yes, they call me Elizabeth. Okay, then I will call you Elizabeth because thank you. I, I don't know you well enough to have a nickname for you yet. I will totally get that. I have complete faith. You'll end up calling me Lizzie or Betty. Yeah, you know, I have faith too. I just want to say that we are at the beginning of a very fledgling friendship. Yeah. And it's really interesting to have met you at this stage of the game. You know, I had shared with you that I am making space and having space made for me in the friendship department. And you had posted something on your social media that alluded to the fact you were writing a book about friendship. And I thought, oh my gosh, I must talk to Elizabeth Day about this. And I reached out to you and we met up in Los Angeles and I cried within five minutes of sitting down with you. (laughs) Which is always a great sign, I think, when you're trying to make friends. If someone just cries instantly. No, I I was so honoured that you felt safe enough to do that. Well, thank you. It was somewhat uncontrollable. I was in a very vulnerable place, you know, and I'm just being who I am in the world. And people will either (laughs) really like it, be indifferent or really not like it. And whatever it is, it is. And I loved that we met in a somewhat unconventional but totally serendipitous way. And we had such a great conversation over that cup of tea for me and cup of coffee for you. And it's such a joy to continue it because I'm a huge admirer of what you've done and how you've forged a different kind of career and what bravery that takes. So it's really lovely to be chatting to you. Thank you for recognizing that. I do really appreciate it. I really do. There's so many things that you and I can talk about, but the thing that I want to focus on today, because we are fledgling friends, I wanted to kind of center our conversation on friendships. What interests you about friendship? Why is that a subject matter that you felt drawn to lately? I think lately, because the pandemic was a time of such enormous reassessment for so many of us, there was this huge global cataclysmic failure, which triggered a lot of tragedy in a lot of people's lives. And I was extremely privileged in the respect that I didn't have to walk in that path. I wasn't a frontline worker. I had a roof over my head. But what it did do for me it emptied my diary overnight. And therefore, when confronted with that, there's both a sense of opportunity after you've got over the initial sense of oppression, of just thinking, oh, I've got nowhere to go and no one to see. And what I realized was my friendships were unsustainable in the way that I'd been operating them pre-pandemic, because every single evening was taken up 
with someone who had either asked to see me or an acquaintance I had made through work and we'd connected and bonded and then the next natural progression seemed to be to have a glass of wine at the end of the day. And I realized that by saying yes to all of those putative friendships, I was saying no to two very important things. I was saying no to myself and to having enough time just to replenish my energies in the evening. And I was also saying no to my core group of friends, the ones who never placed those demands on me because they appreciated that I was busy, who had faith that I would come to them when there was space in my life. And I realized that that was out of whack, that actually where I got most nourishment was not the endless socializing. Once I realized that, I asked myself how to redress the balance and I didn't have an answer because as you will know, friendship has vanishing little language that is unique to it. It's an incredibly big and diffuse idea. It encompasses so many different kinds of relationships and so many different relational depths. And it was really my confusion and my sense of being lost in that that led me to this exploration of trying to write a language of friendship. And so that's what made me interested for writing the book. But I think more broadly, my big lifelong love affair is with my friends. They've been there for me at times when I have been through romantic relationships that have ended in heartbreak and divorce. You know, I have been through a lot of other things that have let me down and my friends never have. So it's sort of an obsession of mine as well. It's also been an obsession of mine because I've always felt that, you know, I had a difficult relationship with my family and I was at boarding school since age 11 and then I was working from age 15. So I was very separated from my family at a young age and my friends are like my chosen family. Yeah. And I think you're you're really right that the pandemic kind of recalibrated so many people's ability to be able to maintain friendships, even down to things like there were friends who were very against vaccines and friends who were very pro-vaccine. And so you literally had to decide, oh, okay, this person doesn't believe in vaccines or if I see this person, I might get COVID from them. My barometer like was like, is it worth me getting COVID to see this person? <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Like it really threw everything in through this very specific lens. And I think it's done a, a huge recalibrating number for many, many people who are now coming out the other side going, I don't know where I stand with people. And a lot of people are feeling the space and the lack of the way things were and not really knowing what they want them to look like. Did you have that experience at all? I absolutely have found it. I think the pandemic for many of us was a slow motion trauma and we got through it. Those of us who were lucky to survive got through it almost by delaying thinking about it. And so now that we're coming out of it, I feel like a lot of that suppressed anxiety is coming to the fore in different ways. And one of the ways which it's manifesting for me is I don't understand anymore how I spend time off because I don't have children and that's a whole other story. I would love to, but I don't. And so during the pandemic, my... Uh, coping mechanism was just to fill all of my time with work, just work 48 hours a day. And obviously I can't sustain that, but I'd sort of forgotten how I spent my weekends. 
And mm. so it's really made me look clearly at who I want to spend my time with and how I want to spend my time with them. And I've got really honest with myself for the first time, actually, it feels like, where I now ask myself what I want as well as considering what the other person wants. Whereas before, I think I was slightly out of whack in that I was a long-term people pleaser and I would just always do what someone asked me to do. If I had available space in my diary and they wanted to see me, my automatic response was absolutely because it makes me a bad friend if I don't meet your needs. And I think that's very interesting as well. The, the term bad friend, we're used to talking about friends in those terms, good or bad, but actually they're very moralizing words. Like the idea that you can be bad, I much prefer the idea of a true friend. A, a true friend doesn't have that sort of layer of moralizing judgment. And I've now realized that friendships can be beautiful even when they no longer play an active part in your life, you can still have a relationship with a dormant friendship that no longer maybe serves either one of you in quite the way that it used to because you're in different life phases now or the pandemic has made you recalibrate. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is different people fit for different stages of life. And everybody having survived, uh, the, those of us that are lucky to have survived, everyone that survived a pandemic is in a different stage of life now because we've gone through a life-changing experience of our worlds being completely on pause and a whole different set of coping skills and ways to fill our time and so many things. It's like a massive recalibration for everybody. And I think what you're talking about is different stage of life friends. And I don't know about you, but Initially, and it was funny because my husband sent me a text the other day saying, oh, I've had the same um, favorites on my phone for years. And I said, so have I until recently. And I had to go through and remove three people off of my favorites. And I was like, oh, that's so painful. And when I met you and I was crying in the coffee shop, I was still in the place of like, what did I do? I must be a bad friend. And then also the stage of anger of like, fuck those people. That is just fucked up. I've spent 30 years of my life with you. You know all the intimate details of me and my life and my friends and my family. And you think that this is okay? This is how you treat somebody? And the truth is that now I'm in a phase where I go, no, th th those were really fantastic friendships while they lasted. It doesn't mean that they're invalid. It doesn't mean that those people are assholes. It doesn't undermine the relationship. The relationship lasted for a really long time and it was beautiful and powerful and it doesn't take away from that. And I'm now able to look back at the friendships and go, oh, no, they were really significant. Those were chosen family for a large part of my life. But guess what? Maybe I have changed and maybe I actually outgrew them. Mm -hmm. Yes. And flipping it and not going, oh, I've been rejected. Yes, Maybe exactly. it's also going, oh, no, I've also outgrown them. They don't necessarily fit for me anymore. And I think not throwing a relationship away because it's so hurtful is really important. It's a much more grown-up decision and conscious choice to make to say, no, I'm still going to hold this person in high regard. I'm still going to have love for them, even if 
the relationship isn't active, which is exactly what you said. You can still have a relationship with the person. It's just not active in the same way. Exactly. That's so beautifully put. I wrote in the book about how relationships can be a bit like volcanoes. They can be active and spewing their beautiful friendship lava all over your daily existence, or they can be dormant, but they will have forever changed the landscape. I've got the same doorbell. (laughs) Oh my God, the doorbell just went off. Yeah, so I think it's that thing of the landscape has always changed by any meaningful relationship that we have. And that's a really lovely thing. And I think what you're describing are the stages of grief, because when a friendship ends, there is part of you that it feels like your memories are dying with it. And you've gone through those cycles of grief. You've gone through the denial, the anger, and now finally the evolution of a kind of peace, which is the best sort of tribute you can pay to your bygone friend. But I also think that the reason some friendships are so unbelievably painful when they end is because we don't have this language. I'm going to generalize hugely here, but if you are a bit of a people pleaser, and generally speaking, if you are a woman who is being raised in a certain society, you know, I was raised in the 80s and 90s, and that was definitely still a society which encouraged young girls to be nice and pleasant and to think of others, whereas young boys were given more opportunity to be assertive and to think of their own needs and bold. Now, if you are that kind of person, you're probably extremely conflict avoidant. I know I am. And that leads to friendship ghosting because sometimes it's too painful for you to root around in your own psyche and to confront someone who you once loved and say, it's just not working for anymore, for me anymore. Because as a culture, we've been sold this lie that friendships have to last forever. And therefore, if they don't, we failed in some ways. But actually, I'm now a huge advocate of the idea that there are, as you say, friendships for certain phases of life. And a true friendship is one that empowers, enables, and embraces the change and the evolution and the growth of both people. And some friendships won't be able to do that for whatever reason. It might trigger something in the other person. And I think what you're saying is really important about it may trigger something in the other person. We pick friends for a reason, right? And they fit different needs. They fill different roles. And certainly with one of my people, we had over the years roles that changed. She started off like my mother. And then I ended up like her mother in the kind of power dynamic and in the caretaking roles that we fulfilled. And it made sense because I was in my early 20s when I first met her and she's older than me. I guess I needed mothering and nurturing. We cast people in roles that they might not even know that they're in. And I'm sure people cast us in roles that we might not even know that we're in. And so a lot of it is the projection and the expectation. And maybe that works for however long it works. But I always say there's nothing like intimate relationships to really fire up your issues. And I used to think that it was intimate intimate partner relationships, but I actually think now that friendships and intimate, and I don't mean lovers, but like really close intimate partnerships also can fire up your issues in exactly that same way. And that's kind of the purpose. If you believe that we are in each other's lives for a purpose, and ultimately I believe that I'm in people's lives for a purpose, and that I'm ultimately trying to help people facilitate healing of some kind and 
feeling better about themselves and giving people tools and support through storytelling and shared experiences. I also have to believe that's the case for me and that people are in my life life to show me how I need to grow and how I need to heal. And certainly my friendships have done that in the most beautiful way and also in the most painful way. I will say that whenever I post anything on social media about friendship, the response is so incredible because I think so many people are also asking these questions and are looking at the subject of friendship. I think it's very interesting that you use that word healing there because as part of the book, I spoke to my best friend, Emma, who is also a psychotherapist, which is the most incredible combination. (laughs) A best friend and someone who is professionally qualified to call you on your bullshit. Amazing. And I asked her what, what friendship was for her, what the purpose of it was. And she said, friendship for me can only ever be healing. When it becomes something else, it's no longer a true friendship. It's a reenactment of past trauma. It blew my mind because actually I realized you're right. If we have any measure of dysfunctional upbringing or a tricky relationship with our parents or a difficult symbiosis with a sibling, which most people do, which most people do. And the chances are that we will be recreating that through life until we do the work on ourselves. And that we have probably recreated that in our friendships unconsciously, which is why if you make a friendship before you've done the work, and I speak as someone who still has weekly therapy, then the more that you grow and look at yourself and realize, oh, that relationship in my family unit actually caused me a lot of stress and anxiety, you no longer want the uh, the friendships that are also recreating that. But So sometimes friendships feel familiar and we think therefore that they're important, but sometimes they can be the most dysfunctional. Well, there's two very significant things. You say a lot of significant things there, but two very significant things is what feels like love and the intensity with which we can connect with people because it feels familiar and it feels like love, but it's actually based in dysfunctional patterns is at times blindsighting. And so we can go, I feel so connected to this person. And often we have to really check, well, is that an unhealthy pattern that feels familiar to me? Or what does a healthy connection actually look like? And what does it feel like? And often it is less intense. I used to get enmeshed. My female friendships were like lovers. I'd be like jealous if they had other friends. This is when I was in school, like when I was in like primary school or whatever. I'd be like jealous. My journals are filled with me writing pages about how upset I am. My best friend at boarding school like chose to have another friend, outraged and so upset because I got enmeshed. I did not know how to connect with people in a gentle way. I took hostages basically. And that then translated into my lover relationships too. And, and that comes from my dysfunctional childhood. And so I think kind of, Working a lot of those things out, um, one of the things I had to do was share my friends. And so I, I purposefully introduced as many of them as possible. I would introduce lots of them. And then what would happen is that they would become friends and not include me. Yes. Oh my God, that has happened to me quite recently where one of the people that has ghosted me is now really close with one of the other people that has ghosted me. No, I'm very, very triggered by that one. But 
I have to think, hey, there's two triggering bitches that now can be triggering together. No, I'm joking. Triggering I'm bitches joking. is a great, great indie band name. <laughs> <laughs> I'm can joking. Say, I'm like, I know, joking. I know you're joking. <laughs> can I just I say, just look, say uh, yeah. I've written down the phrase emotional hostages. I think that's so smart. So I I called my book Friendaholic, Confessions of a Friendship Addict, because that's what I realized I was. I was someone who got like an immediate buzz from connection and it made me feel so good about myself. And I thought that that was a cure for my own lack of self-worth, that I was just accumulating people who seem to like me i was taking them emotional hostage it's such a good way of putting it and a bit like it's you, validating it's validating it's so, it feels yes. good to be wanted and needed exactly but then you get into a situation where in order to continue being wanted and needed you try and work out what they want and need from you and then you sort of efface yourself in that friendship or relationship and like you i went to boarding school and i actually i was born in london but i grew up in the north of ireland and it was a very specific time to move there as an English person because it was in the grip of a civil war where a lot of English people were viewed as occupiers. Now, going to secondary school with a specific kind of English accent like mine, I was never going to have a good time. And I didn't have a good time. And I felt bullied and an outsider. And when I changed schools halfway through a year, I was determined that the next school I went to, I would make myself popular because I believed rightly that there was safety in friendships, in those kind of n- friendship numbers. And yes. that's how I survived secondary school. And I think that mindset stayed with me. Yes, it's, it's you, as you said, you rightly knew that in order to survive, you had to integrate yourself into a tribe. Let's not forget that being a part of a community is necessary for survival. If we look at basic Darwinism, we're programmed for this. We're programmed to be part of a community and to have fulfill a role and to have support. We're not supposed to be these islands. And so I think your instincts were right. My instincts were right. When I got to boarding school, I was yanked out of my, however dysfunctional it was, family. And I was like, oh my God, I'm all by myself. I'm 11 years old in the middle of the countryside. I don't know anybody. How am I going to survive? I had to make friends. It forces you to, otherwise you're desperately lonely. And like any ecosystem, whether it's jail or boarding school, like you need to work out what the hierarchical system is, right? Yeah. And work out how to get your needs met within that. So I think a lot of it is instincts, but I think when they run riot is the issue. And I love that the name of your book because I am in recovery and I identify with multiple isms and love addiction um, definitely encompasses addiction to friendship love as well as platonic and non-platonic love. And I love that you're framing it in that way because it is, you know, our instincts are right, but it's when they run riot and they get out of whack that we get into trouble. Exactly. If you love the conversation, then I wanted to tell you about another podcast I host called VS Voices. The VS Voices podcast provides a platform for women to speak their diverse truths, share personal stories, and advance discussions of issues that are important to them. You can listen to Voices on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. What is the feeling you were left with after one of the worst friend breakups? I don't need to know the details, yeah. but the feeling you were left with where you were like, wow, this is 
devastating. I immediately think of this one, and I have anonymized it and written about it in the book, where I was ghosted seemingly overnight by someone I would have considered one of my three closest friends. Now, the feeling was disbelief, panic that I had done something terribly wrong, that I was a morally bad friend. And then sadness, but it was sadness that was slow moving. I was sad for months, months and months and months. And I would catch sight of a present that she'd given me and think, I don't know what to do with that because I I don't want to look at it every day. against the wall. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I ended up throwing it out, but it took me, it's such a long time. There you go, much less of a violent approach than mine. (laughs) Smash it with a hammer. I think it's because (laughs) I thought she'd come back into my life. I just couldn't believe that that this was how something could end with no explanation I, and so into that void, you're left putting your own thoughts there because you're trying to make sense well, you of create, it. You're trying to narrate you yourself. create a story. Yes. But you're not yes. in their head. You're not in their head. Okay, so so that was months of like a slow burning sadness and disbelief. And once you kind of checked and you tracked back at your behavior and you go, no, there was nothing hugely offensive that I think would warrant this. How did you then make peace with the fact that she no longer wanted you in her life? That's such a good question. And I have only recently made peace with that. So it's taken me years is basically what I'm saying. And I've been through romantic relationships since then. I've moved homes. I've been through so much. And I think what I've realized is, and I think it's sort of the same for romantic relationships, that no one can ever know what's going on in someone else's head. And if they choose to live a life where they would rather disappear than say something, that is totally their choice and it consigns them to living a different kind of life from the one that I would want for myself. Now, believe me, I'm extremely conflict avoidant. It would take me a lot to say something, but I don't think I would just disappear without anything. I don't think I... I think I would... Well, in fact, I know that I have done that. I think I would uh, navigate it so that the communication became less frequent, but I would still be loving in those communications, but I would try and rebalance the amount of time I was spending with a certain friend if I felt like it was damaging to me or it was no longer healing. But that it was so sudden. And, And now I'm at peace with the idea that actually I wouldn't want to be friends with someone who could do that to me again. And I realized that my metric of friendship, you know, some people's metric of friendship is physical time. They need to spend loads of physical time with someone. Some people's metric is shared activity. They like doing hobbies. They love book club. My metric is, is generosity of spirit. Like I don't need to see you all the time, but I do need to feel safe that you will always give me the benefit of the doubt. And if I've done something to upset you, I hope you will realize as my dear friends that I wouldn't have intended that and I would much rather you told me so I can act on it. So I think that's how I made my peace with it is like actually I wouldn't want to be that person's friend now anyway. Listen, I've got a really good feeling about our friendship because (laughs) I do because your friendship barometer really lines up with my friendship barometer and I think having 
shared goals and shared ideals and values are really, really important in any relationship. And not just that, but how you do that on a practical sense is also really important. So if we had a shared goal of safety, trust, open communication, but what that looked like for me was that I needed to have a lot of physical time with somebody and yours did not look like that, that would be difficult because we just had very different practical approaches to the same goal, the same value system, Yeah. but how's that going to work? And I too, one of the most important things for me is kindness. I value kindness in people so immensely and kindness lines up with generosity of spirit. To be kind, you must be a generous person. I think that's really important. I also don't need to spend lots of time with people because I think that a connection with somebody does sustain whether you see them or not. I have a very dear friend, my friend Sophie Dahl, who I love so much. And we've been friends since she's 14. And I think I was 17 or I'm a couple of years older than her. She lives in London, in England, in the countryside. I live in Los Angeles. She can text me three times a year. It doesn't matter. I still, I love her. We have a profound connection. We can drop in when there's a crisis, doesn't, when there's not a crisis, doesn't matter. There's a connection that sustains time and space. And that's great to know that exists. But then there are also other friends that you need more time with in order to stay connected to them. And one of the things that I've been doing, I've looked at friendship like rings. There's like the immediate kind of ring of people around me. And then there's kind of rings that move outwards. And some people I've had to move from friend to acquaintance. Yes. And that's actually very sophisticated of you because there is a whole scientific theory propounded by Robin Dunbar of Oxford University about friendship layers. The, the inner one Tell me extends about that. to... Okay, it's so interesting. The inner one extends to five people. And the science says that beyond five, you can't really sustain the relational depth um, the authentic intensity that such an intimate friendship requires beyond the number five. Now, if you get into a romantic relationship and you want to put effort into that, that, according to Dunbar, will cost you two friendships from that inner circle because that's the amount of time and effort you're putting into laying the foundations for a long-term romantic relationship. So what's what about if you've got kids? If you've got kids, that just wipes out all the friends. That just wipes out all the friends, yeah. Basically, or you've got, got to decide day. whether you're going to have a partner because you've got to go friends, partner, kid. This is very interesting because this is one of the challenges of having three children, a partner. And well, I don't really have many people in that inner circle anymore. But certainly when I did have, I would say five at least, it's very, very hard to maintain, very hard to maintain that level of intimacy with everybody. Totally. I have three stepchildren and a blended family and that's also a really difficult and wonderful thing to navigate at the same time but you're right it means that we're expending time on that because it's deeply important and nourishing to us but you mustn't feel bad for moving people from the inner circle to the wider one which will be 10 and the one beyond that is 15 and so on and so on until it goes up to 150 and Dunbar says that 150 is basically what the human brain can cope with that's our Christmas card list those are the people you'd invite to a wedding. Like it's the, those, the 150 circle. And 
that number is replicated again and again through human history. It's the average size of a medieval village, for instance. It's, like, it's very interesting. Wow. So this is based in, in data research and yeah. study. Yes. Um, and therefore, you shouldn't feel bad for having to move someone into an outer circle because what you're doing there is you're protecting the ones still in the inner circle because you're going to diminish the quality of those friendships if you just keep adding and adding and adding to that inner circle because you're just not going to be able to to have that relational depth in the way that would be most meaningful to maintain those friendships. And I think just on something else you said about establishing friendship barometers and chatting about it, I'm a huge advocate for that. Like I love that this is the second time we've met and we've already discussed what our friendship metrics are. How wonderful. Everyone should be having those conversations before they make a proper friendship. Okay. There's, in the same way I when agree. we date, we have the conversations about like whether we want kids, where do you want to live? Like you have those conversations and it's completely acceptable. There's a sense that it's sort of a bit weird to do it in friendship. And I don't think it is. I think it would save a lot of time and a lot of heartache if we all. But as you said, we don't have the language to have those conversations. Unfortunately, people are still unsure how to have those relationships in sexual intimacy. The language around consent has only really been given more defined parameters over the last few years with the birth of the Me Too movement. And and so many people now saying, Oh, I don't know what what does active consent look like? You know what? Well, here's the language. Here's the questions that must be asked. Here's the answers you must get. You must get an affirmative yes. A silence does not mean yes. It's only in the last few years that we've been having more of an informed dialogue about consensual language around sex. So, God knows what it's going to take for people to have more of an informed language and to really define a language around friendship agreements. I think we're kind of a long way off that, although I agree with you, it would be so helpful if we could do it. Yeah. I actually had lunch with someone the other day who um, I've only just met and we got on and we decided to go for lunch. And she introduced me to the term non-consensual friendship, which is quite funny. She was saying it in a humorous way, but I was like, actually, that's so interesting because there's a fundamental difference. What does that mean? So for instance, there's a difference between being friendly and a friend. So being friendly shouldn't automatically translate into that person wants to be my friend. And if someone mistakes that, which is totally understandable because we didn't have the language and we don't have the language and my book is an attempt to, a tiny attempt to rectify that. But that could be a non-consensual friendship where you find yourself in a dynamic where you're like, I'm not sure I ever wanted to commit to being this person's full-blown friend. I was just being nice. <laughs> I was just trying not to be rude. I was, I was being friendly. I like them. And I'm really happy to sit next to them at the bus stop and have a chat. But I don't want it to go beyond that. I don't have what they need from me. That would be categorized as a non-consensual friendship. And again, to return to my best friend, Emma, who's just a fan of wisdom, she said, you know, I consider myself a friendship freelancer. Like, if you tell me what the job requirements wow. are, <laughs> how many hours it's going to take, I will be able to tell you whether I can commit to that, which again, she was kind of joking. But I think these are good ideas to have in the back of our minds when it comes to forging new friendships. Wow. I love that we're creating some form and shape around the different types, like a friend 
freelancer. Okay, so I would say that I used to be really good in a crisis. I'm used to high cortisol, high stress, chaotic situations. That's my family of origin. And I grew up hosting live TV. So I'm really good. I watched you, Amanda, and you were (laughs) absolutely fantastic. Thank you. So I'm used to like things moving fast, changing quickly, high intensity. I was trained really well. And then I realized a few years ago that that I had been with many friends through some of the most traumatic experiences of their lives. And my husband said to me at one point, he was like, please don't get involved in any more crises with your friends because it really takes time away from your family. And at first I was somewhat offended by that. I was like, what kind of friend would I be? The person is obviously in a life-changing crisis. And I thought, oh, Similar to what you said at the beginning of our conversation, it was only when I started really thinking about myself and how did something affect me, not just meeting somebody else's need, was I able to step back and go, oh, you know what? This doesn't actually fit for my life because I've got three children and a job and dogs and cats and chickens and a husband. And I've got things I need to take care of. And I actually cannot dedicate myself to that kind of chaos. The cost is too high. And I had to start stepping back. I always had one friend that was in, in a crisis and I don't anymore. So I've consciously released people who need that sort of support. And I know that there'll be somebody else who will be able to be of service to them in a way that I can no longer do it. Well, to return to the language of addiction, Sometimes what happens is we attract friends who generate crises and we like to think that we're helping them because it gives us a sense of purpose and actually we could be enabling enabling them. them. Yes. And that's, I think, the way you can make peace with that. Actually, sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to step away and let them navigate their own crisis. Yes, I had a very close friendship with somebody who ended up in a very vitriolic court case. And I, by default, because I was close to the situation and I was, while the person was in crisis, I ended up getting dragged into it just by proximity. And that taught me a really valuable lesson about taking care of myself because the cost of being close to that situation was very high, personally, potentially professionally, for a lot of reasons. And it really made me think about who I loan myself to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Who I make myself available to, you know, and really made me think, oh, hang on. Like, you've really got to assess every situation here because there is a cost. What's the friendship cost when someone's in a crisis, for example? And I think until you value yourself enough and until, who's the man that did that research that you were talking about? Robin Dunbar, D-U-N-B-A-R. I I wonder if Robin Dunbar considers ourself as being one of our five friends because that relationship with yourself really is the template for your relationship with everybody. And until my relationship with myself was healthier and I appreciated and valued myself more, I put myself in friendships where I was being treated in a way that, or treating myself in a way that ultimately I grew out of. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think we were talking at the beginning of the conversation and I was talking about my experience of ghosting and, and you asked me, how can you be at peace with that? And I think part of it is active gratitude. I'm incredibly grateful that I had that transformative friendship in my life for a certain period of my life. And that really helps living with the pain of how it might have ended. And I think it sounds like you're there with your recent friendships that have undergone this transformation. And there's this, as I was writing this book, someone I've never met before DM'd me on Instagram and said, I see you're writing this book and you're interested in friendship. There's a quote from Nietzsche, the existentialist philosopher, all about what he calls star friendships, friendships that are no longer active, but that played a big part in your life. And they're in the, in the sky now, they're in the night sky, and you can sort of guide your life by these stars, and we can pay respect to them for that, and we can admire their beauty and be thankful for them, but they're not part of us walking the path that we're walking. They might shape our horizon, and I just thought that was so bloody beautiful. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> isn't it gorgeous? God, that's beautiful. That's beautiful, because that's how it is, isn't it? It's like... And those some of, and, and stars are so far away as well, and some of them are closer and they're brighter. But it doesn't mean that you know. I guess it depends our position to them, right? And let's not forget that friendships can come back around. That's a really good point. And actually, my friend Bonnie, who lives in LA, she's in her seventies, and she told me this amazing story about how she had such a close friend in her thirties and forties. And then one Christmas, her friend sent her this letter, brutal letter saying, I no longer want to be your friend. This is everything that I don't like about you. This is everything you've ever done wrong to me. And Bonnie was just shell-shocked. And that was the end of the friendship. Years went by. And then it was Christmas again a few a few years back. And she decided to let it go. And she reached out. She sent this woman an email. And the woman got back in touch and was like, I'm so sorry. I was going through such a weird time in my life. And they're now friends again. And I think that's the thing, you know, if we're lucky enough, life is long and they do come back in different forms and we should be open to that. I'm very open to that. I do trust that we are in each other's lives for whatever period of time it is for us to be able to grow, evolve, learn, heal. I really, really do believe that. And maybe someone served a purpose for us or we've served a purpose for them. We've done what we're supposed to do in their lives and, and that's that. Or maybe it's cyclical. And there'll be another time where you'll meet each other's needs and you'll be back in each other's orbits, if you will. Definitely. And actually, it's so funny you say orbits. Like, I use that that language because the star friendships sort of unlock this whole thing. And I was like, oh, friendships are like planetary systems. And actually, the orbit of the earth, you can tell I'm not a scientist. <laughs> I'm more creative. But my understanding is the orbit of each planet relies on the orbits of others and the the kind of the weight of the universe and the balance of it relies on this delicate equilibrium and sometimes a smaller planet is incredibly is absolutely crucial to the existence orbit of a larger planet and vice versa i sort of i use that that language a lot when when writing about friendship the language of orbits and planets and stars and universes when is this book coming out i'm dying to read it <laughs> I lo- i'll send you an early copy it's out in Please. April. Okay. It's out April 2023 in the UK. 
I don't have an American. I've got fiction published in America, but I've never had non-fiction published in America. So we've got to get yet, that for you. It's crazy. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> I'm I'm sending that to the universe right now. Um, but it will be out in the UK. I think it's fourth of April, 2023, and it's called Friendaholic Confessions of a Friendship Addict. And I honestly, as you can tell, Amanda, I'm so passionate talking about it <laughs> i could talk about this for hours and i'm so grateful to you for giving me this opportunity to chat to you well i too am very passionate about this subject matter and i'm so grateful that you're writing this book because i'm hoping that it will help shape some much needed language around friendships thank you for being a part of the conversation today thank you so much for having me it's been an honor you're welcome thank you for listening please subscribe And don't forget that if you love the conversation, then check out VS Voices, which highlights trailblazing women from around the world to celebrate the female experience. You can listen to Voices on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter and follow me on social media at Amanda Decadene.